The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to Very Loose Women. Uh, so today we're joined by um, Kirsty and Tasha, who write a zine called Fuck Zine, and also they put on some workshops called Count Fuck Won't Fuck, which is where Lily and I first made contact and met them and were really interested in what they were doing. So we brought them on to talk about a bit about those two projects. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks a lot no for problem. Um, joining us. Maybe let's start off by talking about the zine a little bit and how it started. Um, so the zine is called Fucked on Being Sexually Dysfunctional in Sex Positive Queer Scenes. And it's a zine that we put out, I think, in March this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd been writing it for a couple of months before that. And it's us two and another two people who were involved in doing the writing. And it basically came out of uh, a lot of conversations that we were having together as a group. Uh, just things that we felt no one was really talking about. So we're, you know, we're in London. I don't know whether we're, like, part of a scene, but, you know, we know a bunch of other queers and stuff, so we're, like, friends with those people. And it just seemed like a lot of the things that we ended up writing, it, it was really hard to say them, like, even to each other when we first started talking and we were like oh, I'm not, like, the only person who feels like this. It was really amazing to have those conversations. And then we were like, well, if there's four of us having these conversations, maybe there's some other people who feel similarly. Uh, But when we first put the zine out, we thought, like, maybe some of our friends would buy it, and that was it. But I think we've sold, like, hundreds and hundreds of copies now all over the world. What kind of issues was it that you were trying to address that you felt you you hadn't talked about before or you couldn't talk about before? Well, for me, earlier this year, I started having psychosexual therapy and that was something that I didn't feel awkward about. I felt really pleased that I was doing it, but it felt weird to be going through that and also being part of a sex-positive feminist scene and hanging around in sort of queer places or queer parties where a lot of the attention is focused on hooking up with other people um, and feeling a bit excluded from that or feeling like I'm weird, or that everyone else is completely normal about sex and having loads of sex, and I'm mm-hmm. just the odd one out. But actually, pretty much everyone's a bit weird about sex. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so for people who are listening and maybe aren't involved in these types of communities, mm-hmm. um, maybe you could explain a little bit about um, kind of what sort of... Um, groups and what type of people um, maybe identify as queer and what being kind of sex positive means in that landscape? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's it's not specifically related to being queer. I think sex positivity was something that I came through to feminism. Um, you know, obviously feminism and sex positivity has, like, come a great way, uh, you know, with, like, emphasis on, like, people finding their own desires and, and being able to... I know you guys did a talk about masturbation and things like that, so there's, like, been loads and loads of progress within feminism. Um, but I think what we found was missing is that, you know, it's it's great to say, like, oh, sex is really fun and it's good for you and if you have lots of sex, you're not, like, a slut or anything like that. Um, but then on the flip side, it's like, well... I agree with that, but also I'm not having hardly any sex and, and now I feel a bit weird and, like, a prude or, like, excluded from spaces or from people who give the impression that, like, they're totally cool and sorted about sex. Mm. And also I think a lot of sex-positive culture or literature um, 
always emphasises the fact that once you start doing consent right and once you start doing non-monogamy or polyamory right, you're going to have all that great sex that you've always wanted to have. And, um, you know, not everyone who wants to do non-monogamy or who thinks that consent culture is really important actually wants to have loads of sex or mm-hmm. um, the end goal shouldn't necessarily be having loads of great sex unless you want it to be. <laughs> so um, when you actually started the zine, mm-hmm. um, did you have a really clear idea about what you wanted to kind of write about? How did that actually evolve? I don't think we really had any idea what what we wanted to write about. I mean, for me... I don't know, I've like kept a diary for like 10 years, so a lot of the things that I ended up writing were maybe just like based on diary entries and thoughts I'd been having. I also um, did sex therapy as well in like 2011, um, so it's using some of those ideas. And then just like, I don't know, just experiences that I'd had like within my friendship group or like within the scene. I think just it's really interesting to me that you've both talked about having sex therapy or mm-hmm. psychosexual therapy, because... I guess it's something that I didn't really know existed or was mm-hmm. was out there and that was a kind of a resource that we could use. Like, how did you kind of hear about it or how did you come across it and realise that was something that might be useful for you? Or maybe it wasn't useful for you? I, I think we've had different experiences. I found it personally quite useful and I know, Kirsty, you didn't really. Um, I guess, for me, I feel like a lot of the reasons why I went to sex therapy was I had previously been in an abusive relationship and at the time, this was like seven years ago or something, I didn't I didn't even really think of it as abusive. I just thought that it was like normal, as I guess a lot of people do. And I think that was a real failure of like sex education at school and things like that, that I didn't realise that the situation I was in was actually really horrible and really bad for me and my mental health. Um, and then I guess like through feminism and stuff, I kind of... I, like, got the words to talk about what had actually happened and how it wasn't OK and it wasn't consensual and things like that. And and then I kind of, like, made a link with that and my mental health and, and kind of being able to, like, self-diagnose. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll go to therapy and see if that will work for me. And it was it was OK. It was quite useful. But I know that wasn't your experience, Kirsty. No. <laughs> <laughs> um... So I've always had a lot of anxiety about sex and have done since I started having sex, which was 10 years ago. And I'm not sure when I became aware of psychosexual therapy as a thing. Um, But I guess about a couple of years ago, I found out that the place where I go for my sexual health checks and where my gynecologist is, um, they also have a psychosexual clinic there. And I managed to get a referral from the doctor I was seeing and the therapy that I had was um, mindfulness CBT so it was meant to be a combination of cognitive behavioural therapy and mindful meditation and I really didn't like it at all and I'd put a lot of pressure on myself because it's something that I'd been thinking about for a really long time and I thought now that I'm doing it I'm actually going to fix myself and then I'm going to be normal and have all the normal sex and be like everyone else (laughs) Um, I just put so much pressure on myself for it to like be a success um, which wasn't even the point of the therapy because it's not goal-oriented. It's about, I guess, about exploring your how mm-hmm. you feel in mm-hmm. those anxiety-inducing situations. Yeah. Um, for me, it just didn't help at all. It made me more anxious. And at the same time, we were starting to write the zine and I was thinking more about... One of the things I wanted to write about in the zine and I did write about in the zine was um, what if 
I'm not broken and what if therapy won't fix me and what if actually I don't really want to have sex or I only want to have sex sometimes and um, what would it mean to to say that and mm. what would that mean for my identity and what would that mean like as a queer person and that's I think something that's come up quite a lot in our workshops as well. Mm. It's quite interesting um, hearing you both talk about this idea of um, you know having loads of normal sex and mm-hmm. great sex and having loads of it mm-hmm. and it feels like often when we've um, you know done shows about uh, masturbation and orgasms we've also brought up the fact that it seems like to be kind of sexually normal you're having sex all the time and you're always loving it and it's mm-hmm. a very particular type of sex where did that idea come from to you did you first become aware of what it was to be sexually normal and uh, functional Um, I think I felt, like, a pressure to be sexual from a really, really young age. Um, I remember, like, starting middle school at the age of nine, and at that time, suddenly it was like, okay, well, now you have to have a boyfriend, because, like, everyone has a boyfriend. And I feel like that was the beginning of then what was just, like, increasing, increasing amounts of pressure. Um, And, I don't know, I I think being at school is, like, incredibly difficult, and there is, like, a lot of pressure. On the one hand you can't have sex because if you do you are a slut and uh you also yeah I don't know it was it was really difficult I think growing up at school I found it very hard and then I guess maybe naively I thought that like when I came out as queer and started hanging out with other queer people that maybe that wouldn't be the case but it often to me feels like a lot of queer culture is centered around hooking up And I really understand where that comes from when we live in a really homophobic society and, like, having those spaces where you are free to hook up with other queers, um, that is amazing and obviously really liberatory for a lot of people. Um, But it still made me feel quite excluded. I think that um, the idea I have of normal sex and this sex-positive scene where everyone's getting Mm. laid all the time, it's it's kind of a straw man, and I know that. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem isn't so much that, like there are loads of people having loads of sex it's that the space isn't being made to talk about sexual dysfunction or asexuality or um other you know being a survivor and other issues that people have with um sex and Mm. that is the problem rather than the fact that i'm excluded from all the cool queers getting laid because i don't really think that's what's going on i also think when i kind of a kind of much lower level issue like the kind of sex banter that happens mm-hmm. quite a lot like I was talking to a friend recently and saying oh, I've just started dating this guy and you know like within about one minute she'd said to me oh have you done it yet like kind of jokingly <laughs> but also like and then she it was accompanied by you know a hand action but um, <laughs> I mean, yeah it was kind of a joke but it did kind of make me feel like oh I need to answer this question and like if I say like actually no I've been a bit I'm not sure about it like it was a bit embarrassing almost because you know it's mm-hmm. so obvious that we would have had sex already that you know like of course I'd answer that way but I mean obviously that's quite a low level thing but to have that kind of ingrained banterous aspect also is a bit mm-hmm. I don't know alienating yeah. sometimes. I feel like the way that I feel about sex and mm-hmm. um, in terms of my sexuality but also just how much of it I want and how mm-hmm. it makes me feel about myself actually is changing quite a lot as I kind of move into different stages of my life and Mm -hmm. of different pressures and you know even friendship groups or a whole host of factors um when did you first and maybe how did you first um kind of start really thinking about um your relationship with your sexuality and I know that you mentioned about finding kind of feminist texts Mm -hmm. 
when did that actually happen? Was there a particular kind of moment where you read something and went, that, that makes sense to me? Um, God, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, I don't know, my... Yeah, I first got interested in feminism when I was doing my undergrad degree. That was probably in, like, 2008, 2009. Um, I don't know. I feel like that was a really that period of my life suddenly like lots of things changed for me and I feel like like pre-feminism Tasha is a really different person to post-feminism Tasha <laughs> <laughs> um but I guess I don't know it's been like a, a like constant process with me and I even think about how I was feeling like two or three years ago and I just feel like how I feel and like my desires have like changed so much and there's just like there's not like a really linear narrative of like how I feel about like sexuality and stuff. It's really confusing all the time. I think finding sort of second wave sex negative texts was really important for mm -hmm. me, and I have to, as a as a disclosure, say I'm anti censorship, and I don't like the way that some of this um, discourse sort of tells heterosexual women they have a false consciousness and that um, all the, the sex that they're having with men is damaging. And I, I don't, obviously, I don't agree with that. But it was really exciting to find a sort of counter-rhetoric that was able to be critical about sex or negative about sex. And I, I really enjoyed it and I enjoyed how angry it was. And I think now we're trying to navigate between... Um, the kind of sex negativity that we're talking about or mm. thinking about and this more sort of like second wave sex negative feminism that we don't agree with a lot of. Yeah, it's it's really hard not, I don't know, I don't want us to be like, yeah, we're rad femmes because no. we're definitely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely some, something to be said for that kind of analysis of sex under patriarchy and how it's just really difficult and fraught and I don't I don't think there's like any right answers you know associated with popularity like you were talking about earlier you know you've got to have a boyfriend and you've got to do this and there's these milestones but then when you're older maybe there's more of a minefield about you get asked out on a date by someone you don't know and they spend loads of money and you're automatically put on the back foot and people might say things like, oh, he was, you know, so chivalrous and he paid for everything and now I feel like I have to see him again. And this this kind of, um, you know, discourse still links into very old-fashioned ideas um, and that's something that I've certainly struggled with, I think. I think there's an issue which, um, with, like, kind of feeling... It's a bit of a contract, like an unsaid contract, mm -hmm. like, oh, well, we've done this, so now we've got to do this. Or, like, oh, we've done it once, so, like, the next time we see each other, we have to do it again, because, like, that's now our relationship, that's what we've entered into. I think mm -hmm. that's a real big problem. Mm -hmm. So when you kind of first started putting together the zine, uh, what kind of response did you have? Um, so the zine was originally, it was just done by the four of us who were already friends, um, and we didn't think about um, asking other people to get involved. But then when we put it out and we have had like such an amazing response and we've done the workshops which I guess we'll come to in a minute um, we're, we're working on a second issue of the zine at the moment um, and we are asking other people to contribute because just from the sheer volume of people we've had at the workshops it does seem that a lot of people have things to say mm -hmm. and also we within a couple of months of the zine coming out we were being contacted by people like feminists all over the world being told that they were selling the zine at their like you know, queer book fair or anarchist book fair, 
um, Copenhagen, Sweden, all cities all over the UK. Yeah. Um, people who want us to come and talk about it or just to say that they've never read anything that's spoken about those issues before mm. and how appreciative they are, which is amazing. Which obviously goes to show that you were completely right about there being a lack of space for people to talk about this yeah. to get such a, an overwhelming response. Yeah, I was saying that Lily and I went to see Can't Fuck, Won't Fuck, like the workshop you were putting on, and maybe can you tell us a bit about how those started and the kind of responses you've had? One of our friends who is involved in the House of Bragg um, squats, which is... Well, it's been a squatting project for a couple of years now for queer people specifically. And um, this summer they were squatting in Brixton for over gay pride to host alternative pride events. And we, one of our friends asked us if we would do a talk based on the zine um, because they wanted something slightly different to the kind of standard consent workshops that go on that often have a really um, sex-positive focus. So we agreed to do that and we were sort of deciding what we would do if more than 15 people came because we might not be able to facilitate it properly and there was at least 50 people there if not 60 and it was astounding and uh, everyone was so respectful to each other everyone gave each other space no one said anything problematic um, and afterwards everyone was just coming up to us and saying how great it was and we yeah. felt really validated because we thought maybe everyone's just going to think we're, we're weirdos. Yeah. <laughs> People were like, what's your problem? Everything's fine. Um, Can you explain a little bit about how it works and what, you know, what kind of themes or what is it you're addressing? And So I guess it's actually less of a workshop and more of a discussion. I mean, I don't feel that we personally have any, like, expertise on, like feeling weird about sex so we kind of <laughs> I'm really good at it <laughs> we um yeah we just wanted as many people as possible to participate so it's so yeah it's, it's a discussion really and actually what's been interesting about doing it in different places in the country is that different um themes seem to come up in different places I guess that's reflective of different scenes and and different things that people uh, want to talk about um but, yeah, we, I don't know, every time we always run out of time. It's, like, always, like, two or two and a half hours, and then we just have to stop because everyone's exhausted. But, you know, it's great. We talked about everything from asexuality and aromanticism, um, things like consent and communication, past abuse and trauma, and then sex therapy and things like that. Um, polyamory and non-monogamy seems to be quite popular. Uh, I don't know what We've else. talked about the role that alcohol plays in uh, feminist or queer spaces and how the absence of alcohol can really change the dynamic. And um, We've talked about disability in sex. So one person at the AFEM conference was talking a lot about autism or the type of medication that you're on and how that can affect um, your engagement with sex. One of the really interesting things someone asked was um, they didn't have anxiety about sex, but what what could people do who, have, who if they have partners who, who do have that anxiety mm. and that was really productive because a lot of the time our workshops are really depressing and yeah. uh, it's a lot of really stuff <laughs> yeah so yeah. that was good I guess we've also we try and for the last section of the workshop is to try and have maybe some more constructive ideas of, of yeah either how you can support your partner or just each other within the scene and maybe some more practical things to do because I think it is really cathartic to talk about you know some of those um, quite negative feelings but you know obviously we also want to be able to try and create a better situation for everyone 
Um, why do you think, I mean, because I was kind of astounded that straight off, you know, you kind of did a bit of an intro and then it just, everyone went for it and just, you know, really, really personal stuff. Why do you think people feel like so comfortable sharing? I don't know. <laughs> I certainly didn't feel that confident when we did the first workshop. I don't know whether it's just the fact that like it's such a novelty to have a space to talk about those things. Like there's there's nowhere else that you can talk about that at the moment or so it seems anyway. And yeah, to have so many people like waiting to talk is, is really great. But yeah, it's it's really scary. I don't know. And I guess at AFEM we talked a lot about asexuality and I think mm. there are a few people there who it's not a distressing issue, it's not a traumatic issue, that's just mm. how they identify and they were really happy to um, give some information about that because we were using a lot of terms that people hadn't heard of before to do with asexuality, so I think that helped. I think as well, I guess the minute one person says something like really, really personal, really gets mm-hmm. the ball rolling, everyone's like, well, it's a free-for-all, I can say mm-hmm. whatever I want. But also, I guess, when you're with complete strangers, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, well, there's no repercussions, you know, I can just say whatever mm-hmm. because... No one will know. And I think you're coming at it from a very personal point of view and sharing your stories rather than saying, you know, I'm the academic journalistic expert on this and this Mm -hmm. is my view and everything I do is co-opting other people into my view. You're Mm -hmm. not, you Mm -hmm. know, you're going um, and encouraging people to feel safe sharing their Mm -hmm. own story by using yours as a kind of um, vehicle to encourage that. So I imagine that that kind of makes people feel like right from the beginning they're in a place that's okay for them to be as honest as possible. You mentioned a few of the topics that kind of mm-hmm. come up um, and how there are differences when you do different workshops in different areas, but are there kind of particular specific issues that come up again and again? I would say definitely asexuality is one. Um, I think also polyamory and non-monogamy, that seems to come up at mm-hmm. all of the ones we've done. I think because I've been going to, like, the AFEM was the day after the Anarchist Book Fair, which I've been going to for quite a few years, and there's usually a discussion on sex or sexuality. It's usually about polyamory, and it's usually about how great polyamory mm-hmm. is, how awfully oppressed monogamous people are, mm. and... We're also radical because we've all got so many partners. Yeah, that and kind I... kind of rhetoric. I think that people need a space to explore the difficulties in being non-monogamous, and one issue that comes up quite a lot is... Um, having multiple partners and not wanting the same relationship with all of them, and how do you how do you tell one person you're seeing that you want to have sex with them when you don't, and then another that you don't, and that I think that has mm-hmm. issues come up quite a lot. I, th- I think it's like um, what you were saying earlier about obligation and things like that, and and working through within yourself. I, I certainly often feel like a lot of obligation to have sex with people, and that seems to be a thing that's come up in terms of like how can we combat that. Um, but it seems to be really, really ingrained. Um, another thing that's come up as well is um, when it's been... Because we always frame it as a queer discussion, even though it's not... Uh, even though other people can come as well. Um, and one thing that's come up is that when you're a queer person in a homophobic society, you're constantly having to defend your identity and your sexual practices, and sometimes you end up doing it to the point that you deny that there's any problems within your communities or... Um, within your relationships because you're constantly on the defensive and so I think having yeah having that space to be able to talk about these those issues without facing criticism from people going yeah that's because you're queer or that's because you're kinky or whatever yeah what I felt was it was really helpful like that you're facilitating that for everyone like for some people as well kind of hearing a label or a name for something that they've been experiencing and realizing oh other people have that or like feel that as well and that's that's kind of really useful do you think it's helpful for you 
Yeah, definitely. I think after the first one that we did at the House of Bragg, I was so nervous beforehand. And I think, as Kirsty mentioned, we were like, oh, God, what if everyone just thinks we're, like, making up and it's not really a problem? Um, but after that first session, like, it is incredibly validating to be like, oh, I'm not the only one who's really weird. And now we have a handy <laughs> little booklet to give every, anyone that we're dating. Just yeah. like, by the way... Just read, read this. the scene. That's what we do with our radio show. <laughs> We're like, oh, you should listen to this episode about this. Um, before we, yeah, before we meet up. <laughs> um, I, I think that is that is true though because. Um, I did date someone earlier this year and they had already read the zine and I just felt like so much relief. I was yeah. like, oh God, I don't have to like explain everything. It was really great. You mentioned about how towards the end of the sessions you really want to kind of focus on finding ways and strategies for partners and people to be supportive and work around some of these issues. What kind of ideas have you and people taking part had? We haven't got that far. People mainly want to talk about how sad they are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we had um, some good suggestions for people who are having sex or want to have sex, which is systems of consent that don't necessarily rely on um, it, the idea of enthusiastic consent, which suggests that, like, you love sex and you want to talk about sex and you're going to talk about your body parts and that's not going to be traumatic for you, whereas some people might find doing good consent really difficult and really mm. triggering but actually really important so we've talked a lot about how the slogan consent is sexy can actually be really problematic because consent is just mandatory and it might not be sexy but you have to do it anyway mm-hmm. um so people suggested like numbered or colored systems so yellow means i want to do this thing red means i don't want to do that mm-hmm. thing or, or a numbering system which i don't like because it, it's got more of a hierarchy yeah, like. but I get. I guess it can be useful for some people if mm. you just if you very clearly know what you want. But like talking about yeah. it would be difficult. So you can say, just be like number three. It's a three tonight, right. please. Go for it. <laughs> um, I think we've also. I don't know, it's difficult. So we talked about, you know, trying to create other spaces for queers that are not centred around hooking up. And obviously you're quite limited by that, particularly in London, where, like, everywhere's very expensive to, like, hire spaces and things like that. So I guess that's, like, an ongoing discussion of how we would do that. Trying not to do banter, because even even though... Like, I know Tasha and I both sometimes feel excluded if everyone's talking about sex and... Um, we don't necessarily feel like we have something to contribute or we don't want to talk about it. So we've been trying to do less sex banter because mm. um, even I'll do sex banter that excludes me. So mm-hmm. I think it's just... <laughs> I guess just like... like what... Excluding yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Shocking. I think like what you were saying, Emma, like not just like if someone's like gone on a date with someone, just like assuming that they're going to have sex or whatever and kind mm. of like questioning that within yourself and then maybe not focusing on that as a, as a topic of discussion with people mm. constantly. It's really great that you're kind of doing all these things in kind of like queer spaces. How do you think there's a way that we can kind of make things like this, so these kind of discussions and these kind of zines and stuff more inclusive? We've been really encouraging people to go away and have these conversations in their friendship groups or their communities or wherever they hang out because, uh, yeah, it's obviously not just an issue that affects queer people and it's definitely mm. an issue that's going to, um, you know, affect women and basically anybody so we we do want people to have those conversations yeah we have really been emphasizing that like it's you know we're not experts it is for people to take away and have those conversations within their friendship groups and and i think even though the zine is written by queer people like a lot of our experiences for me anyway was when i was iding as like a straight woman and having a lot of sex with men so i i don't think it's like necessarily a really 
uh, clear distinction. I think one of the reasons we focus on the queer scene is partly because we're part of it, but also because we expect it to have a better standard because it's engaged with feminist politics or it's got a good consent culture or it's meant to. So mm. kind of expect that standard to exist. But, but, but I think the problems that we're talking about are, are pretty universal, really. Mm. Um, I wonder if you could maybe tell us a bit about what you've got coming up next. So anyone who is listening and is like, <laughs> yes, I really want to get involved, um, how can they do that and keep up to date with you? Um, so we are taking submissions for our second zine, which is going to be called Too Fucked, Too Furious. Um, if you want to uh, submit something for that, you can email us at sexcritical at gmail.com. Really, really emphasise, if people want to write something, that would be really, really great because we want to hear from as many people as possible with with different experiences from ours as well. So, And we also have a Tumblr, which is fuckedzine.tumblr.com, and that keeps up to date with events and stuff. Uh, we're hoping to go and do a talk in Manchester in the new year. So, yeah, that's what we've got planned. And if people want to invite us to, to do facilitate other discussions, mm-hmm. that'd be great. I think you should Brilliant. roll it out into schools. Really yeah, I was, ideal. I was but. thinking about how a lot of what we've really talked about links back to our first experiences of mm-hmm. sex and people talking about it and how, you know, sex education at school, we've talked about this a lot on the show, just isn't really fit for purpose. And mm-hmm. um, a lot of these ideas, looking at texts and experiencing kind of different points of view talking about different different types of sexuality it's really basic at school and so much of this would be so helpful to kids Mm -hmm. um so i completely agree with you on that front because it's just coming up all the time people we we have talked about that i think at the brighton one we were talking a lot about consent and especially with children and how often children aren't treated in a very consensually way not to do with sex but just in any way you know you just assume that kids will want to be hugged or tickled or whatever and how it starts really basically at such a young age that people don't give consent to what's happening to their bodies uh, so yeah I think we need to do really early interventions mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess it's probably a good point to stop thank you so much for coming on yeah, thank thanks you. for coming thank on for full versions of our shows check out verylosewomen.wordpress.com this programme was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.